Good morning again, everyone. It is good to see all of you. What a great passage, right? It is good to worship with you this morning, enjoying the Word of God, singing praises to our Lord together. Very encouraging. The Apostle Paul starts his letter to the church in Philippi with some very encouraging words. Look over there real briefly to start with this morning. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3. He speaks as someone who has great affection for those he is writing to in Philippi. You see almost like a spiritual father loving his uh, children in the faith. As he speaks to him, he states in Philippians 1, 3 through 8, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy. In my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You can hear his love for the church, can't you? It's it's beautiful. Even his uh, beginning there, he says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Well, do you understand that as we're going through Acts 16, we're looking at the first day. We're looking back to Acts 16, 16, and we're seeing the first days of the church foundation. And this is what he has in his mind as he writes the letter to the Philippians and just is so overwhelmed with joy and love for these people. This was truly a great beginning to a church plant. You can hear his genuine love for the saints in Philippi. So who were these saints? These are the ones that we've been looking at over the last couple times in Acts 16. They are people we have introduced. Today we will be introduced to even more of these believers, specifically the jailer and his household. This was a solid church that... Paul had great affection for. And then these were a a special group of people. The reason why is because they heard the word, they embraced the word, they were saved by the word, and they lived out the word. And then they followed the examples of their shepherds. Today we continue our study of the establishment of a biblical church. We see a church must be founded on a group of people delivered by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. A Christ-exalting church is made up of a body of believers who participate in the gospel ministry together. A church that makes disciples. A church that participates in delivering people through the proclamation of the gospel. A church made up of people who have been saved from the penalty and bondage of sin. Last week we saw the first deliverance was a salvation for the Gentile businesswoman. And then that first convert was Lydia, the, the lady from Asia. And then second, we saw the salvation for the demonically directed servant. We saw last week this slave girl was 
delivered from demon possession. And we started with this deliverance. She had been in bondage both to a demon and human masters. The demon gave her abilities to know things that only the demonic world could see. This made it possible for her to be a so-called fortune teller. This made her human masters substantial prophets, as we will see. But as the demon bellowed out half-truths, and as the missionaries ministered in the area, finally Paul and the Lord's patience ran out. They had had enough. And Paul, being greatly agitated, irritated, cast the demon out. And the delivery appeared to be permanent. Immediately with this deliverance, the heart of the community is exposed. The lights are turned on and this community responds with wickedness from the top down, as we will see. This may be contrary to how we often think. I don't know about you guys, but often I'm rejoicing and seeing somebody come to Christ and I think, oh, this is going to be good. Everybody's going to rejoice over this. And we realize their family hate it that they've come to Christ. When you think of when you, when you do kind things for people and you rescue them out of bondage to sin, you think, well, it's going to go good now, right? But instead it doesn't. We are often caught off guard by the world's response to the peace brought through the gospel. But as we will see, the missionaries aren't caught off guard at all. They see it as all just one big part of God's great plan to save people for himself. I want to respond like these missionaries. I want to be like these guys. And I know it's by my understanding of the gospel and my understanding of Christ better. My hope is today as you look at this passage and as we examine this passage that you will both be confronted by the missionary's response, but then also encouraged to look to the one that they look to, Jesus Christ. He is so satisfying to their souls. They respond to the world in ways that seem almost impossible, crazy at times. It's because they're in love with their Savior. First, let's look at the community's response to the slave girl's deliverance, the persecution. Let's read again in verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. First we see that giving hope to the slave girl gets the missionaries in trouble. Persecution happens. Notice the motive for persecution. We see this in our first verse here. But when the master saw their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. Her masters were furious over their profit loss. As we see, the world is blinded by their lusts and idols. The masters made money off of the demon-possessed slave girl. Now their meal ticket was gone and they were furious. We see here how the demonic world uses human sinfulness to propagate their evil ways. And it's very important. I don't think the, de- the, the, the masters really cared less about a demon being in this lady and controlling her. They were really clear, um, concerned with only one thing, the bottom line. The slave owners could care less about the girl's bondage to a demon. They just wanted money. 
And this is how the demonic world works through the world. This is what they do. They find an idol in one person and they use it against others. This is exactly, folks, what we see with Planned Parenthood right now, right? The wickedness is being unfolded before our very eyes. Planned Parenthood is an organization that makes money off of wickedness. The fact is many wicked things in this world are tied to economic reasons. Do you understand that most of the wicked things have some kind of economic background to it? Pornography industry, why is it so big? People are making money. All of the wickedness of the world often goes back to people that are driven by their idol of money. They, want, they have a love of money. So they have their own idols. People love, people's love of money will cause them to kill innocent babies and propagate a business that extorts even the youngest and most vulnerable of its community. And that's exactly what we see. In Acts 16, it's the same exact thing, isn't it? There's nothing new under the sun. People's idols will cause them to do barbaric things. This is exactly what we see happen, happening in Acts 16. The slave girl's masters were about making money off of her. And when the ability to make money was taken from them, they were enraged. So they turned their anger towards the ambassadors of deliverance. The missionaries found themselves in the crosshairs of people who had their idols threatened. So when the Lord uses Paul to deliver the slave girl, the lights are turned on and the human master's wallets are affected. This brings persecution. Note next the details of the persecution. The persecution unfolds as follows. First, they drag them out of the marketplace before the authorities. Second, they falsely accused them. Next, they wrongly convicted them. Finally, or fourth, they ruthlessly had them beaten with rods many times. And finally, they were thrown into an inner prison and bound. Often persecution comes not from the direct message. And I want you to take note of this. Most of the unbelieving pagan world just writes off the message of the gospel as foolish when they hear it. But when the power of the gospel changes a person's lifestyle, then there's outrage. Family members, like I said, become angry. I'm almost positive some of your family members have called me names over the years because I proclaim the gospel, and as time goes along, you're changed by the gospel, and then I become their arch enemy. It's happened, I know, because people have told me what their parents called me. But this is what the gospel does. And again, I really don't care. No offense. Take it up with God that saved the person through the gospel. But there's ripple effects to the gospel, right? I believe we will see this similar hostility from the world one day, if not as bad now. It's not always our message. Many times our message is ignored, like I said, but when we are put in a place where we stand against the world's idols and, in fact, keep them from enjoying their idols, oh, folks, that's when they get mad at us. When we take their idols away from them and they say, you can't have this, whoo, talk about people getting angry, that's when it happens. 
And we step up and say there is hope in Christ and people turn from their sin and embrace Christ. This means the person becomes a member of the body of Christ. They have a new father. They have new friends. They have a new Lord and they have a new governing authority in their life. And the word of God becomes their primary source of authority. And the person's community is affected. You start living differently when you're under the, submit, uh, under the authority of the Word of God. This is how it's been from the beginning of time. When a person turns to God, the world is confronted. They're confronted with the truth that changed the person. Moses confronted the people with his life and his God, and the people turned on him. In fact, his own brother and sister turned on him. We know this as we read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. An illustration of this, look over at Hebrews 11. Look at over at Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Look down at 1135, and you see some examples again of this. People that trusted in God, they had faith in God, and when they did, what happened? Persecution happened. Notice verse 35, he's listing off all the people in a shotgun effect here. He says, Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Beloved, this is what the life of a believer looked like in the past, in the Old Testament. It looked like this in the New Testament day, at the early church. And guess what? It's looked like that ever since. Church history is littered with believers that have been persecuted for Christ's sake. Just a a few for you to take note of. All 11 apostles were martyred except one, the apostle John, who tradition says was boiled in oil but did not die and then was put onto the Isle of Patmos. Tradition says that the human author of the book we're, we're studying, Acts, Luke, was hanged on an olive tree at the orders of a pagan priest in the same area of Macedonia. So Luke witnessed all this. Luke, what witnessed Paul being persecuted and go through this in Macedonia area? He stays in the Macedonian area to develop and and disciple the people. And one day, one of those pagan priests of the false gods has him hung on an olive tree. Articacus, another Macedonian, was later martyred under Nero in the same region. Many other Christians were torn apart by wild beasts and brutally Martyred during Nero's reign just a few years later. During Domitian's reign of terror, Simon Bishop of Jerusalem was crucified. Nicodemus, the Jewish convert to Christianity, was martyred. Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, was beaten to death with clubs. Why? Because people were enraged by his preaching about a false god in Ephesus. He got beat to death. Ignatius was devoured by wild beasts. Listen to what he said before he died. I am the wheat of Christ. I'm going to be 
ground with teeth of the wild beasts, that I may be found purebred. Who talks like this? Roughly 10,000 Christians died under Trajan's persecution in Rome at one, moment, at one time. The way he killed them all was he put thorns of, uh, crowns of thorns on their heads, speared them through, and crucified them so that they could mock their, follow their Savior's death. Fox states, the cruelties under Emperor Marcus were such that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight and were astonished at the, the, the wickedness of this evil. Some of the ar- uh, martyrs were obliged to pass with their already wounded feet over thorns, walk over those thorns, walk over those nails, over sharp shells. Upon their points, in other words, they had to walk on them. Fox says, others were scourged until their inward parts and veins were laid bare. And after suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised, they were destroyed by the most terrible of deaths. Beloved, this is just the persecution that happens before 160 A.D. This is just the first century and a half of the early church. And there's more, thousands and thousands more since then. This is true suffering, beloved. Nothing in uh, any of us has ever endures compares to this. And I, you say, why in the world are you listing these out? Because I think we need a cold shower. What is it that wakes us up from complaining over our circumstances? Seeing that our circumstances pale in comparison to anything that anybody went through before us. I think it also prepares us. I think that's why the Bible is littered with all of this and and shows this over and over. It's to prepare us. We must recognize that following Christ is costly. And if it doesn't cost you anything, maybe it's possible that you don't know him yet. No, I'm not saying we will all die martyrs' deaths. But beloved, it is a tragedy that we can't even endure a little mistreatment from our co-workers or our family members without breaking into, woe is me, I am ruined, this is horrible. We are a complaining people, aren't we? None of us has suffered anywhere close to what these people did. We need to wake up, don't we? And trust me, I'm preaching to myself just as much as you. I ask my kids about the golden comb. Notice also how the persecution was advanced by the slave girls' masters. There's the deception of the persecution. Take note in verse 20, look. They said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. 
Just like Jesus had faced, the missionaries are accused of something they didn't do. The charge is, it's not, it's not this. We lost money because our demon-possessed slave was set free by these men. That's not what they say. That's why they're really mad. Instead, they say, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. These charges all focus completely on Roman colony issues. Again, this goes back to the context that's so important. To remain a Roman colony required stability. Roman colonies were, were required to stay low and out of sight of Rome. Or Rome would send troops and take away their status and require higher taxes. And no magistrate wanted Rome's forced regime change. So when the master said they are throwing the city into confusion being Jews, this was like a lighting a fuse for a bomb. This would be like calling out, ISIS is here. They were accusing them of being terrorists. Now, we know the missionaries weren't terrorists. They were ambassadors of peace. But again, the idols got the people to say whatever it was necessary in order to get the fuse lit. They accused the missionaries of proclaiming customs that go against being Roman. Most likely, this was a veiled allusion to committing to Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Either way, the key concept for the magistrates was being Romans. Now, when they say being Romans, at this point, the Romans, Paul and Silas, should have immediately said, Hold on, we're Romans. But they didn't. The accused knew the way to get the magistrate angry and the crowd riled up to play to the politicians' understandings of the colony status. They were accused of being going against Rome itself and there is no mention of demons or prophets, just an attack on their Roman status. As we think on this passage, one thing intrigues me. Why didn't Paul and Silas speak up? Why didn't they say, wait, 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 being Romans? I'm a Roman. Because we know that in the later part of the chapter, he does bring it up. Why didn't they say it? Why didn't they say, wait, we are Romans. You better be careful what you do to us. However, they make this appeal the next day to the Roman citizenship. And later on, right before Paul is beaten, we know that he uses this. In Acts 22, folks, in Acts 22, 25, Paul does this. Look at your Bibles. In Acts 22, 25, right before a guy's about to beat him, he goes, but when they stretched Paul out with the thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Yet here in Acts 16, they don't speak up. Paul and Silas are both Roman citizens. Why not? I'm not positive. But it sure looks like these missionaries take the persecution for the rest of the believers. These events turn out to be the way, a way of giving some protection to the infant church after they endure the persecution. 
Either way, if Paul and Silas didn't remember, okay, they forgot they were Romans. I doubt seriously they forgot they were Romans. I'm fairly sure they knew. Or maybe they were screaming it really loud and nobody said it, but it doesn't say anything like that. We know for a fact God knew. Didn't God know? God knew this was going to happen. God knew that when he, they cast out the demons, he was the one casting out the demon. And he was using Paul and Silas, right? And he knew that they were going to respond with beating them. This doesn't catch God off guard. So God knew. But why did God not stop it? God was using these events to build in some protection for the new believers and establish the church in Philippi. Whether Paul and Silas had that in their mind or not, we know one thing God did because that's what unfolds. Notice the peak of persecution, though. The missionaries were beaten. They were stripped and beaten and imprisoned. This kind of beating was something that Paul endured three times. It was not for the faint of heart. It often caused excessive bleeding and could even produce broken ribs. I don't know about you guys, but, you know, and I'm not saying I want my head cut off, but at least it would be quick. You know, have your head cut off, five minutes later I'm in heaven. Personally, I don't like to be, I I can't imagine being beaten three times by rods on three different cases or stoned and left outside as dead of a city. I'd rather just get it over with quick. I kind of like the chop real quick. That'd be good. I admit going up to that would be a little scary. But ultimately, being beaten just to the point of death, but then get up and go do it again, is not something that I would like to do. This isn't for the faint of heart, is it? So the missionaries take the beating, I believe, for helping this slave lady be delivered from a demon. They did something good and they get beat for it. The obvious question is, if God delivered the woman and God knows everything that would result, why in the world would he do it? Why would God ordain this? Why would God ordain these difficulties? Friends, the answer to the question is simple. For the good of the missionaries and the glory of the gospel's advancement. That's what God's doing. God doesn't waste suffering. God uses suffering to sanctify his saints and save more people. God uses suffering to bring glory to himself. God uses suffering to build his church, contrary to the word of faith movement. More faith is displayed and therefore God is glorified more and more people come to him. And the missionaries knew it. They knew being beaten was an opportunity for even bigger things for God. And this is why we see the shocking response of the missionaries in verse 25. Look at verse 25. These are awe-inspiring words. Look at them. Verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Is this not wow? 
I have read these words in my Bible. I have studied this passage over and over, and I have gone through this passage numerous times, and it still is one of the most convicting and yet encouraging passages in all the Bible. This right here, just those words. It's like shuts my mouth immediately every time I read it. How many times this verse has confronted me when I was complaining over my circumstances? It has, I'm telling you. It confronted me again this morning. Every little complaint is held up to this, praising and worshiping God after being beaten with rods. Oh, folks, I want this kind of life. What about you? I want to look like this. What about you? Look at this response. These verses are shocking. The missionaries are in stocks in the inner prison. Folks, prisons were nothing like today in that day. They didn't have three good meals and a TV. They weren't treated with, they didn't have beds. They didn't have, you know, your own bathroom facility. You just went where you were. You understand you're in stocks. He doesn't come let you out. Hey, let me take you down to the watering hole. Use the bathroom on yourself and that's just tough. They're in stocks. It's midnight after being beaten. And yet, what do they do? What do they do? They prayed and worshipped. It's shocking, isn't it? Many of us would have been laying there, grumbling and complaining, saying things like this. Why me, Lord? What are you doing, Lord? Why didn't you stop this, Lord? When are you going to stop this persecution stuff, Lord? When are you going to give me a break, Lord? Instead, they prayed. They sang hymns. And they praised the sovereign God. I don't know about you, but if we stopped right here, we should all just be on the floor groveling. Is there anybody in here? Oh, yeah, this is my life. I'm like this regularly. This is what you get from people who get the big picture, though. This is what you get from people who understand that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is what you get from people who know the love of God through the Savior's death for them. This is what you get for people that really enjoy and delight in the Savior. So how about you? When do you worship? Well, I worship when the when everything is good. When it's beautiful. And the air is nice and cool. 
and everybody likes me. That's the easy time to worship, right? Is Jesus so valuable to us that we sing and praise God in song, even in suffering? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Do we know and trust the sovereign God so much that this could be a description of us during persecution? Friends, this is possible for all of us who are bought by the King and dwelt by the living God. This is possible for you, beloved. As we savor Christ, suffering becomes opportunity to worship. Again, worship comes from a right understanding of God. And it transpires in the midst of all types of circumstances, even during persecution and suffering. Why? Why does it come about even in suffering? Because worship is not dependent upon stressless circumstances. Worship is not dependent upon physical health. Worship is not dependent on being liked by others. Worship is not dependent upon prosperity. Do you understand? It's not dependent upon how much money's in your wallet or your bank account. Worship is a God-produced awe. A savoring of the Savior and His sovereignty over us. Worship is an acknowledgement of God's rule and reign over us in all circumstances. Worship comes from a heart that values God over anything we're in. MacArthur states, the greatest display of worship is obedience. I'd take it one step further. The greatest display of worship is acknowledging and embracing God's lordship through suffering. Honoring Him even in the midst of suffering. Is God this big for you? Is His love so rich that you would worship in these kind of circumstances? Is He so satisfying to your soul that you would sing hymns of praise to Him after being beaten with rods? We can fake worship when things are good. It's a fact. We're good at it, aren't we? But when the trials of life and the fires of the enemy begin to singe our lives, this is when our hearts are truly revealed. You want to know whether you're a worshiper of God, a true worshiper of God? Have somebody mistreat you. And how you respond will reveal your heart. Have somebody take away an idol of your own and see how you respond. At this point, many of us in the room are like, okay, Mike, let up. <laughs> let up, okay, I'm on the ground, I'm nothing. <laughs> the same message that saved us is the same message that we need right now. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to him. He is good. He's enough. Acknowledge your need of him. Acknowledge your propensity to complain. Ask God to change your heart. And then strive to know him. Taste and see 
for the Lord our God is good. The missionaries revealed their true commitment to Jesus, didn't they? When they worshipped in these impossible circumstances. Next we see this worship along with gospel message is what God uses to bring about the third salvation. Salvation for the unsuspecting prison guard. So let's look at the jailer's conversion account. This is just glorious. It's beautiful. The word is proclaimed first. When Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, they were proclaiming the word at the same time to the prisoners because the prisoners were listening. And most likely, I think the jailer must have heard at least a portion of it. The assumption is that he heard something because why would he ask, what must I do to be saved unless he saw that he needed to be saved? Again, you know that these stories are often summarized, right? You understand? We don't have every single detail. So most likely that's what was being said. So the word was proclaimed. But at least initially the jailer wasn't overwhelmed with the truth. He wasn't, oh, this is exactly what I need to hear. Let me go loose those guys and hear more about it. He fell asleep. The word of God was heard but resisted. In verse 27, the jailer heard something, but it must not have gripped his heart because he goes to sleep. And it's not until the earthquake hits that he is awakened and ready to hear. Which brings us to the word awakens his convert. Now, the word, you say, wait a second. I, didn't, I don't see the Bible spoken and the earthquake happens. Well, I'm, now I'm talking about the incarnate word. The Lord awakens the coming convert. How did he do it? Well, notice verse 26. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Oh, folks, do you understand how gracious our God is? He didn't have to give a wake-up call to this guy. He works in a miraculous way to produce an earthquake. Additionally, all of the chains are unfastened. I believe this is probably more than just a providential act of God. I do believe God uses providential acts of God sometimes to get people's attention. Many of us have probably had those before, right? Those wake-up calls where you say, whoa, I'm going in the wrong direction. Here it's one, I think it's miraculous because the, the chains are loosed also. A man in his position, though, the jailer understood when he awakes or he rises, he's beside himself in despair. He sees the doors open and thinks immediately the prisoners have escaped. Now listen, a, a man in his position knew exactly what happens if prisoners escape. If a Roman jailer, especially, I mean, think about this. He just watched the magistrate, what? Beat those guys because they were causing confusion. If you don't fulfill your duty, I think he probably feared the local guys. What do you think? These guys are going to get me. In fact, they could be punished publicly and would most likely involve a prolonged, shameful, embarrassing death. So what's he do? 
when he's awakened and decides suicide is the best option. That's what he says. I'm dying now. I, gotta, I just got to get out of here because it's going to be really bad. But notice, he draws him sword to, his sword to kill himself. However, once again, God shows extreme mercy. And the word is again proclaimed to him. Look at verse 28. But Paul cried out in a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself for we are all here. He called for lights and rushed in trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul first speaks to rescue the the jailer. Don't harm yourself, we're all here. I, I, I would love to see how this all worked out. It's very strange. How did Paul know that the guy was about to kill himself? Because it appears he rushes in, he's in the inner prison, he rushes in and turns on the light to see. So how did they know that he... There's so many questions. The fact of the matter is, is that God was working. God was saving people. And the jailer gets the message, doesn't he? He realized he almost died. He realized he should, should have been listening to these God worshipers instead of sleeping. He realized he needs a deliverer even more. And he needs one in more ways than one. It doesn't say specifically how the jailer knew he needed to be delivered from his condition and the judgment to come. I think we can assume that he heard Paul and Silas Maybe he knew more about the events with the slave girl and Lydia. We're not told. But one thing we do know for sure, he recognizes his need for salvation. And beloved, I think this is where I was trying to take you, even in your sanctification. And that's where the passage takes us. When we read verses like 25 where they worship in a bad situation and we're confronted with our own sin and our own hearts that are this way, what are we recognizing? Our need. We need help. We need to be more like those guys, right? The jailer saw his need of salvation, that he was lost and desperate and would kill himself apart from God. So he cries out for help. We too need God, don't we, believers? Everyone in here, we need him. All the time. And the message that Paul and Silas gave to this unbeliever who is coming to Christ is the same for us. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Trust in the Lord Jesus and he will deliver you. It's important to note that this is not the totality of what the missionaries told them. Notice verse 32. In other words, look, just don't, don't pull a Joel Osteen and just say one line and think that a person can get saved from that. Say these words and you're saved. Welcome to the family. I'm glad you're here. You're now a part of the family of God because you recited one sentence. Give me a break. That's not the point. Again, look at verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Verse 31 summarizes the gospel while 32 makes it clear the missionaries gave more information. This is, folks, a missionary's dream, a disciple-maker's dream, a man and his family ready to hear the word of God. 
By the way, this kind of commitment to the truth characterizes every person who the Lord is working on. So notice we see the word is embraced. Oh, this is sweet, isn't it? Look at verse 33. And he took them that very hour of night. That's the jailer took him, them, the missionaries, that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. I, I was meditating on this way. I forgot my thumb drive and I had to go over and came back and I was thinking more on this passage. And I was thinking about this. Do you understand what time it is? Do you realize most likely what time it is? Do you understand that they started worshiping and praising God around midnight? And that everything unfolds and the magistrate are told to come out the next morning. So this is the middle of the night. They've been beaten. They were put in stocks in prison. They're worshiping, praising God. There's an earthquake. Get up. Now let's be ministered to, share the gospel, and these guys, they're going to get treatment for their back, the wounds, in the middle of the night. This is a long night, a very long night. And, and on top of that, let's do a baptismal service. And immediately he was baptized. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but in our day and age, we'd push that off a couple weeks. <laughs> Wait until we can fill up the water. <laughs> Get a good group together. Right? Yeah, but he, he baptized him and his whole household that night. He brought them into his house. Man, what a, is the jailer converted? It's not even a question, is it? It's just like we saw in Lydia's house. Brings them in hospitality again, right? Not only that, can you just see the jailer, the same guy that threw him in the prison, locked him in stocks because he didn't want him to get away. Now he's taking cloths in the river down by the water, washing their backs to get the blood off their backs. What a conversion. This is what the gospel does to people, doesn't it? It transforms us, changes us. He treats the wounds, wounds. He brings them into the, his house and sets food before them. And then he worships. Notice him, rejoice greatly having believed in God with his whole household. I believe 33 emphasizes the whole house was converted, contrary to our Presbyterian friends. Now I admit, the translation in the NASB could be different. It could say, he greatly rejoiced with his whole household, having believed in God. So where the with is with his whole household that they rejoiced, or was with his whole household that they believed? That's a great question. And I asked our Greek scholar, and he said it could be either way. So I'm going to leave it at either way. I will tell you this, most likely it was they rejoiced with his whole household. However, think about this for a second. It doesn't change. It really doesn't change the meaning that much. Why? Well, think about this for one minute. Jailer gets converted. His whole house is there. I believe they're converted too. And the reason why is because they're rejoicing that the jailer got converted. Now, if how many of you rejoice that the jailer is converted if you know that this could cost you 
your life. Because after all, the day before, these guys were beat for following that God. I don't know about you, but my kids probably would not rejoice that I was following God, that they knew if their daddy the next day could get killed for following God. That's not a household rejoice unless you all know the glory of the gospel and the saving power of it. So either way, it works, doesn't it? I believe both. And so it does speak against the Presbyterian idea that he saved his whole household by getting saved, that one guy. Listen, I can't save my children. They have to trust in Christ themselves. Either way, I think the household believed, and the reason is clear. The word of the Lord was sweeping through Philippi, wasn't it, folks? Lydia and her household believed and were baptized. The slave girl is delivered from a demon permanently. And now the jailer and his household embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now there's one last thing the Lord wanted to do before he sent them to another city in Macedonia. He wanted to strengthen the believers. Look at this. This is beautiful, folks. And give them a measure of protection from this pagan city leadership. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 35 to 40. Now, when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release these men. I don't know about you. I am baffled by why. Why did they say, okay, now release them. Beat them. Keep them safe. Next day, release them. It doesn't tell us. All I can say is God. God can work in all kinds of ways. So they decide to say, I'm going to release these guys. Maybe they started feeling a little bit of guilt, saying, oh, man, we were really tough on those guys. We really didn't hear their side. We didn't even listen. Maybe. Either way, notice. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans. Oh, that would have been, man, do you understand how shocking that would have been? Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. (laughs) Do you understand what this, this little report would have been like back to them? Remember, being Romans was the whole theme. Being Jews, being Romans, and now being Romans. You beat Romans, Roman citizens. Those politicians would have been falling all over themselves to make up for this. Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble. We've stepped on a landmine. This is how the world reacts, by the way. By the way, haven't you seen this with this Planned Parenthood thing? The world very reacts very slowly. Baby's dying. It's been totally ignored for 30-plus years. Right? It's ignored. But when you find out that they're getting money, somebody's taking money and selling body parts, now that's over the top. Don't fund Planned Parenthood anymore. Now it comes to the news. Oh, beloved, there's something wrong. Big heart problems. Big heart problems in our country. We react only when 
our idols are messed up. And again, why do these guys come? Real simple, because they were afraid of losing their Roman colony status, and they didn't want regime change. So what do they do? They act like all politicians. We'll come down here and see these guys out. Will you please leave our city? Please, please leave our city. We don't want any problems. Please don't hold this against us. It's almost like, okay, now who has a little bit of protection? Anybody that Paul and Silas knew. Before it was, if you know Paul and Silas, it could cost you your life. Now, if you know Paul and Silas, you got a little bit of protection. Because those are those beaten Romans. Isn't God good? This is how God works. Because he loves his bride, the church. And he cares for each and every one of us. I don't know about you guys, but when I've gone through this passage, I'm, I'm always confronted by my own need of God. And I want so much to worship him in all circumstances. I'm so thankful that we have a God that when he sees us at that place, he's there to reveal himself to us. And that's the God right here that protected his bride. He loves his church. He loves us. No matter how many times we fail him. I'm thankful for that. How about you? If you don't know the love of the Savior, let me tell you, he is a good Savior. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to him and trust in him. For he is our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for watching over us. Thank you for protecting us. Thank you for disciplining us, Lord, through your word. We have all been confronted with the word today, and we see our need again. We cry out, oh, Father, help us. Please forgive us. Please sanctify us. Set us apart. Help us to have hearts of worship, even in difficult circumstances. Lord, we commit by your grace to pursue you at our own hurt. That we will put to death sin and that we will pursue you in a disciplined way. Help us, Father, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that you're working in us. Love you, Father. We commit this day to you and we ask that you save. Use us as ambassadors of peace in this community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen.